You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Steve Fleming, who is a professor at UCL, University College London, and also the author of this book, Know Thyself, The Science of self-awareness. Welcome, Steve. Thanks very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, look, this title of your book, Know Thyself, this is uh, really quite ambitious. The phrase, of course, goes back to the ancient Greeks. And for philosophers, you know, this is not just sort of an interesting type of information, but it's kind of a, a life work, right, to know thyself. I teach courses in, in judgment and decision-making. And, and of course, we spend a lot of time distinguishing between what you know about the world and what you know about what you know about the world. And, and in many ways, I think that the latter is more important, especially in a world where you can kind of rely on other people's knowledge. So kind of good quality calibration is sort of the secret to wisdom. And I, and I think that, you know, this is also something that philosophers emphasize. You dig into the kind of science of it and talk about how this is something real. You mentioned that, I think it was Auguste Comte who said that it doesn't make sense to split consciousness in two, but you say it does very much make sense to split consciousness into the doer and the thinker about the doing. How did you get interested in kind of metacognition? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a fantastic entry point into the book and a really nice summary for, of why I'm so fascinated by it is this elusive idea of self-awareness. And as you say, it's something that humans have been fascinated about for thousands of years. This is not a new topic. It's been, you know, it's held up by the ancient Greeks as key to wisdom and, and the inscription of know thyself on the temple of Delphi and so on. So there's this long intellectual tradition, but it was only relatively recently that there seemed to be the tools starting to emerge in psychology labs that could gain an empirical foothold on how to measure and study self-awareness in simple tasks. And that's what psychologists often refer to as metacognition or thinking about thinking. And I really got into this somewhat by accident. I'd always been fascinated by consciousness as a topic more in philosophy of mind, but also I did a psychology undergraduate degree and I I had a fantastic course on consciousness as part of that degree that really got me hooked on this puzzle, as it were, like, why is the human mind conscious? Why do we know things about ourselves in this reflective way? And then I went on to do a PhD in cognitive neuroscience using brain imaging to study decision-making that didn't really have much contact with the field of consciousness science, but it was really towards the end of that PhD that what had started to emerge in the field were these really interesting approaches, taking models of decision-making and extending them out to ask how do people form confidence in decisions they make? And so th this is this kind of minimal sense of knowing what we know, knowing what we don't know. And it turns out you can formalize that as what we call metacognitive sensitivity. We can measure that in the lab. How well does your confidence track your performance? in a range of different tasks. And that provides us with this empirical foothold on how to study, how to measure, and how to interrogate metacognition 
in the lab in a way that we can also combine with all these wonderful tools we have for brain imaging. Now, a lot of people say that what's unique about humans is our capacity for mind reading, right? And when we're looking at others, we can sort of figure out what they're thinking. And some people would argue that our metacognition might be kind of a, a byproduct of that. It's kind of obvious why mind reading is helpful, you know, in social interactions. Is metacognition useful in and of itself, or can you think of it as kind of a byproduct of this theory of mind, almost like a, an incidental secondary benefit of theory of mind? Well, I think to begin answering that question, it's useful to maybe distinguish two types of metacognition. So there's what I refer to as implicit metacognition, that that's this minimal capacity to assign confidence to our beliefs, to our decisions, to our actions, to, in a sense, create a model of our perception and action processes at work and to recognize when we might have made errors and have gone off track in various ways. And we think that level of implicit metacognition is shared quite widely among many animal species. It is something that seems to emerge quite early in life. And so you can find telltale signatures of error monitoring and uncertainty tracking in human infants and also many animals, including monkeys and rodents and dolphins. So there's this kind of like self-monitoring capacity that seems to be quite widespread in the animal kingdom. But there is something that we think is perhaps more heavy duty and that is more akin to what we mean by having conscious awareness of our minds at work. And that is what we refer to as explicit metacognition or conscious metacognition about ourselves. And that seems to emerge a bit later in childhood. And to circle back to your question, it seems to intriguingly emerge around the same time, around the age of three or four, when kids also start to gain theory of mind ability, when they also start to be able to model the minds of others and to recognize they might have a different perspective on a situation to themselves. And so that's where I think there is an, a potentially quite close relationship between mind reading and metacognition. But at the moment, it's still largely a hypothesis that needs to be tested. And we're doing some of this work and other labs are doing this work as well, showing that the types of brain networks that are involved in metacognition about ourselves do seem to overlap with the networks involved in thinking about others. So these regions in the medial prefrontal cortex seem to be important for both. And also, as well as the developmental evidence, there's now really interesting work coming out of David Williams' lab in collaboration with, so the philosopher Peter Carruthers has been really prominent in, in arguing for this view of this coupling between mind reading and metacognition. And they've done really beautiful recent empirical work to suggest that when you tax mind reading, you also impair self-directed metacognition. So there does seem to be this kind of overlap at the more conscious level of this. There seems to be a symmetry there, but I think it's still a hypothesis in need of further testing. Well, maybe we can talk a bit about the implicit metacognition, the first type that you mentioned. Yeah. It's in part about how we learn about the world. So we're constantly constructing models of the world and then updating those models whenever what we encounter deviates from the, the model that we have, right? So, you know, I think I guess dopamine is involved in, in this. As you know, we think about Bayesian learning, presumably there's some optimal speed with which we update. 
And we could either update too reluctantly, right? And kind of get wedded to our models, or we could update too frequently and kind of have less confidence in, in our model. How do we kind of calibrate that? Is that super sensitive to the, the environment or how does that play into metacognition? And can we take charge of that to some degree and modify our capacity to encounter surprise and, you know, figure, you know, hunger after seek out kind of disconfirming evidence or, or be more sensitive to disconfirming evidence. And what exactly is the trade-off? Like, why might we be too wedded to our models and why might we not be wedded enough to our models, so to speak? Yeah, no, I think these are fascinating questions. And I think that, I guess the background to this is that increasingly in neuroscience, there's this move towards thinking about the brain as a prediction machine. It's trying to build a model of the outside world, also a model of its own actions in the outside world. So we can recognize when we aim to reach for the coffee cup, but it goes slightly off track and that's registered as a prediction error about the action that we intended to make. And similarly for building models of the perceptual world, there's now a, a beautiful range of experiments showing that perception is this process of inference that we don't just take in data from the outside world in a feed forward way. It's a delicate interplay of both top-down and bottom-up factors. And so then that raises the really interesting question, which is that A, how do those internal models get built and updated? And B, as you say, like what controls, what's the meta controller there that controls how fast people might change their models or learn about things? And the Bayesian ideal observer framework provides us with a guide for what the system should aspire to do there. It should aspire to change its models to a greater degree when either it's more confident about the data coming in or when it's less confident about its initial priors, when it thinks it doesn't know the answer. So there does seem to be this really interesting role and it's something that's only just starting to be explored. One of the functional contributions that implicit metacognition seems to make to the system is that these confidence or uncertainty estimates seem to be important for weighting the learning process. So when we're more uncertain, when things are more volatile, then that leads to faster learning. Whereas when we're more sure that we know what the model is like, then we have slower learning. Now that's a caricature and the actual scheme of how that works and how it is implemented in the brain is still an open research project. But I think the, the interesting thing there, and I talk a little about a bit about this in the book in terms of decision-making is that that's all very well and good. If our confidence is aligned with some objective notion of accuracy, but if, you know, if I walk around thinking, ah, you know, I know everything about the economy, so I don't need to read the newspaper to find out how that works and so on. Like then, then I've got a strong confidence in my model of how the economy works. And maybe I then don't go and seek out information and I try and spout my views to everybody who will listen. And that's a case where my confidence has been decoupled from the underlying knowledge base, the accuracy, and that might happen for various reasons. But we do think, and we've done some experiments on this showing that confidence controls, it, it acts as this meta controller to weight how sensitive you are to new evidence. And so if you're overconfident, you're going to be less sensitive to the new evidence coming in. You're going to also be less likely to seek out new information. And we've shown that profile 
that profile of individual differences also tends to be associated with people who hold more dogmatic or extreme beliefs about political issues. So there does seem to be this cluster of kind of implicit metacognitive profiles that affect how sensitive you are to new information about a range of topics. If we're modeling this process as some kind of optimization function, what is being optimized? So Herb Simon would talk about cognitive effort or load, right? Or we're trying to, thinking requires some kind of energy. And, and so therefore we're, we're trying to minimize it to some extent. I'm thinking in terms of, you also make the distinction between kind of the, the automatic aspect of thinking and then the more planning aspect of thinking. You use analogies like the airplane that's on autopilot, right? right. And then occasionally you have to kind of intervene and, and override the autopilot. It's obvious that there's some sweet spot where you are doing the intervention at the right moments, but you're not kind of intervening in continuous time. So what is being optimized? I mean, obviously kind of fitness is, is the ultimate thing that's being optimized, but how do we, how should we think about it in a more day-to-day? -day? Yeah. So the analogy with the autopilot, I mean, that's a loose analogy, but I think it's a helpful one in terms of distinguishing between what I mean by implicit and explicit metacognition. So the idea is that you have this whole range of exquisitely sensitive, but largely unconscious self-monitoring going on under the hood that keep our actions on track and that update our perceptual models of the world and so on. And that's analogous to a airliner flying along and the autopilot is constantly making adjustments to keep that plane locked to a particular height above the ground. And then the pilots in that scenario would be the explicit metacognition. In a sense, they are becoming aware of perhaps failures or limitations to what that autopilot can achieve on its own. Now, that's not to say that we have a little homunculus in our heads. This is all one interconnected system. But I think it's a useful analogy that these, the explicit metacognition is in some sense another model of the model and how it's doing. So it's a meta modeler in that sense. In terms of what its ultimate goal is, I think this is, I mean, this is a fascinating question and it really goes deep to the heart of what brains are for and what they are doing. As you say, ultimately it needs to be something couched in terms of evolutionary fitness, but there's, I think an, an attractive story about prediction error minimization here, which is being articulated well by lots of different people, but one prominent voice here is someone who's actually in my department in at UCL, Carl Friston, who has developed a very rich theory of what should brains be doing to optimize their fitness. And his theory is effectively saying that what they should be doing is looking to minimize the surprise of their current states. And by surprise, he doesn't mean like psychological surprise. He means surprise in the sense of if I'm underwater and unable to breathe, that is surprising in the sense that my system expects to have oxygen and I've not got it at the moment. So then I should tend to move towards a state where all of these different prediction errors are being minimized because I have sought out a state that keeps my bodily functions within a narrow range, body temperature, glucose, oxygen, all these kind of things. And so in a sense, you can then build ever more elaborate loops on top of that, which says that like, okay, if I need to get the food to make a sandwich, then I have to go to work to earn the money to get the food to make the sandwich. And so there's this kind of like this notion of hierarchical planning in the ultimate service of some prediction error minimization. Now, I think that that story, that 
broader master narrative for what the brain might be doing, I think works quite well for simpler systems, simpler organisms, how it butts up against what humans are doing consciously and the notion of certain things being accessible to awareness and the notion of self-reflection and why that comes online sometimes and doesn't other times. I think that's a fascinating question. And I, I'm not sure it's been fully worked out in that, in that direction. Well, I mean, cause like philosophers always, they, they pass judgment, right? So they say the unexamined life is not worth living. Right? So we sort of say that the people with better metacognition, right? These are kind of, you know, more, more virtuous people. They're, they're better people, right? Everyone ought to work on their metacognition and exercise that, that muscle. But presumably if, you know, there must be some downside to this, otherwise we wouldn't look around and find so little metacognition relative to the philosopher ideal. So what are you giving up when you kind of become hyper aware of what's happening underneath the hood? Yeah, I mean, I think one interesting route for pursuing, I, I should say that trying to do experiments on fitness aspects of metacognition is incredibly difficult because in a sense, what you want to do is like know how people's lives unfold and whether they succeed or fail. And these, these kind of longitudinal assessments are really hard to do. So a lot of the, what we do in the lab is correlate, say your metacognitive ability measured on a particular task with your performance in some other area. And so empirically, there is quite a lot of data on this now. And interestingly, it does seem these tasks, these quite simple tasks that we run in the lab, where we get people to make simple decisions and rate how confident they feel in their answers from those kind of data, we can build up quite a rich and reliable statistical picture of your metacognition, how good you are at tracking your performance. And that seems to identify a space of skills and abilities, if you like, that is somewhat independent of what we normally think of as intelligence or what's measured by IQ tests. So the metacognition and IQ in the healthy population tend to be relatively uncorrelated. You can be very smart and very unself-aware, which anecdotally also sometimes rings true. But what's interesting is that when you look at the more delicate interplay between metacognition and attainment, especially in younger children, where a lot of this work is being done, you get a much richer and I think instructive picture. So work by developmental psychologists has shown that when you measure metacognition at time T, then that will predict the child's attainment at time T plus one. And the explanation for that is that it helps them guide their learning. It helps them know what they don't know. It has this kind of sits in the background and is this hard to put your finger on, but really important component of self-regulation of learning. So in that sense, within subjects, there's this functional benefit for self-regulation in a sense. From that perspective, it just seems like more is better. And why wouldn't you want to have more and more metacognition? From a different perspective, and this is something that the psychologist Chris Frith has talked quite a lot about in his writings, is this idea that metacognition is also social and that we can't build a model of the world all alone, it's actually really useful to be sensitive to the views of other people. And humans might be uniquely good at incorporating the opinions, advice, feedback of others when they're building their own model of the world. And Chris has made the case that maybe you actually want to have slightly suboptimal metacognition about what's bubbling up in your own head so that you have this sensitivity to what's coming in from outside. 
And I think that's a really interesting hypothesis that actually like what might be being optimized is not my metacognition, but it's the collective metacognition of the group. And when you adopt that kind of perspective, that almost group selection perspective, then maybe you have a slightly different pressure on what it means to be good metacognitively. This is like Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber's argument as well, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things I found interesting was you mentioned that when the SATs, the standardized tests introduced the option of, well, the penalty for getting a wrong answer, this changed the rank ordering of the people taking the test. So previously there'd be no penalty, just guessing. <laughs> so you weren't actually able to measure whether people were confident or not confident in their guess. And then when you start penalizing, now all of a sudden leaving it blank is an option. When you introduce that penalty, then the test becomes a measure, not just of how much, you know, but how much, you know, about what, you know. Yeah. So the psychologist, Phil Hyam did some lovely work showing that if you simulate what a ideal question answerer should do in a, in a setting like that, and then you simulate different levels of metacognitive sensitivity of that agent, then the ones who, whose confidence is better coupled to their knowledge, gain more points. And the intuition for that is that knowing whether to ink in an answer or not should be guided by how confident I am in that response. And so as soon as you have this kind of adaptive ability to choose to volunteer or withhold an answer, metacognition becomes important in regulating your accuracy there. In a sense, like it seems to be a relatively unintended consequence of, of the test, because you can then have this scenario where two people might have on paper, identical skill and knowledge of a particular subject area. But if one's metacognition is screwed up and their confidence is not tracking their accuracy anymore, then they're not going to do so well on that particular test, whereas they might've done a, well on a different type of test. So it's, it then becomes an interesting question, like, was that a good inadvertent consequence of the college board deciding that that's the way SAT should be run? Because presumably the people who ended up getting sifted towards the top were the ones with slightly better metacognition. You talk about individual differences, and I guess you could look at this kind of cross-sectionally at a moment in time, but then you could also look at it longitudinally. And if I understand correctly, self-awareness and metacognition is something that you can develop with training. You mentioned that there's a particular part of the brain, right? The frontal pole, which is engaged in this. Is it kind of like the hippocampus? I mean, does it get bigger? Is it like a muscle that you work out and it becomes kind of stronger and, and more capable? How do people and why do people become better at metacognition? Is it like one of Celia Hayes's gadgets that if you get the right kind of environment, when you're young, that metacognition kind of develops and flourishes? Are there educational environments that are more likely to promote the development of, of metacognition? It's a great set of questions. And on the link to brain structure and function, so we're getting an increasingly, I guess, more detailed picture of how metacognition is supported by different parts of the human brain. The earliest studies on this they were looking at correlations between individual differences in metacognition and the structure and function of different brain regions. And there, there, there are systematic associations with the frontopolar cortex, which is right towards the front of the prefrontal cortex. And it seems to be particularly well expanded in humans compared to non-human primates. 
and anatomically we think it is in a sense at the top of this cognitive hierarchy so it might make sense that it's playing more of a self-monitoring role but we now know from more recent studies that there's a whole network involved and that it's not just one brain region doing metacognition as it were but what's interesting there is that because there are these systematic and specific networks involved in metacognition it also means that they can be selectively damaged or subject to disease and so we have seen in in our studies of this that if you have lesions or or a tumor encroaching on aspects of the frontal cortex then you might have particular problems with metacognition even though your performance on the actual task might remain intact so you just have this in a sense selective loss of self-monitoring of how well you're doing on a task so that's the that's the kind of current state of play in terms of the neuroscience of metacognition we're just trying to drill down now into understanding what different parts of this network are doing what brain signals are they carrying that enable self-evaluation and that's very much an ongoing research project but in terms of training and how that might modulate that circuit we do have some early data quite preliminary data suggesting that you can train it in the sense of we've shown that when you give people feedback on how close their confidence is to their performance, they become systematically better over the time, but there's still an open question about like, what is changing there? Are they just becoming strategically better at using the rating scale that we're giving them? Are they becoming truly more introspective, whatever that might mean? So there's an open question there about like, what's actually changing. We have actually completed recently a brain imaging study of this we haven't finished analyzing the data but that will start to tell us answers to the kind of question you pose about like what's changing in the brain when people become more metacognitively able another direction that people have taken to answer that kind of question is look at what happens following meditation experience meditation training because there's this increasing appreciation that what meditation might be doing is sharpening up this meta model of our minds at work. And if that's what it's doing, it should also hold functional benefits for empirical markers of metacognition. And there is also, there's some, again, quite preliminary, quite a small number of studies on this, but there's some encouraging evidence that meditation training might be one low cost route to becoming more metacognitively able. Right. And presumably people who are more metacognitively able are more open to feedback. I give this example. I think it was someone who had hemispheric neglect or had some kind of problem and they were recorded on video. And then when they saw the video of themselves, they revised their understanding of themselves and, and made it kind of more accurate. So, you know, if you have someone, for instance, who is talking too much, right. And they don't seem to be aware of the fact that they're talking too much. If you take a recording of the conversation and then you, you know, plot out the percentage of time that they're talking and show it to them, presumably they, they would have to update their opinion to some degree, but it seems like metacognition is, is if you're really good at it, you wouldn't need that recording. You would kind of be watching the recording in, in your brain, so to speak. Right. So is, is there a connection between metacognition and openness to feedback and willingness to learn from this feedback or is it, if you're really good, do you not need feedback at all because you, you're giving yourself feedback sort of in a continuous time? We do think that the um, mechanisms involved in recognizing your own errors on tasks are overlapping with those involved when people tell you you've made an error. 
And this again comes back to this idea of prediction error that I predict that by pressing this button, that will give me the right answer. And there was some really clever work that was well ahead of its time done by a psychologist called Pat Rabbit back in the 1960s in Oxford, where he took these simple performance tracking tasks and he just asked a very simple question of the subjects, which was, if you've made an error just now, press this additional button. And so this then suddenly becomes a test of metacognition. What he showed there was that people were able to make that self-correction very, very rapidly indeed, much more rapidly than what would have occurred if they'd just been given this ex external feedback. So the processing time for error correction was very short and much shorter than the time for processing external stimuli. And so what that suggests is that there is this kind of internal error monitoring mechanism, and that has been studied using EEG and it, you can reveal these, what are called error related negativities in the EEG when people make mistakes on simple tasks. But what's really interesting is that that kind of response seems to involve the same dopamine circuitry as external rewards and punishments recruit. So there, there is this sense in which, like, just as your question suggests that what metacognition is doing in that sense, in terms of being able to track our mistakes and when things go off the rails is in a sense, standing in for that external feedback and the way it presumably does that is by building this model of how we are acting in the world. And because I have a model of how it should have gone, if I do the wrong thing, then I get this prediction error signal and I don't need the external feedback to tell me that I've done the wrong thing. Well, maybe we could talk about education because you had some comments toward the end of the book about how sometimes the best teachers aren't always the best doers. And you know, we know that in sports, right? The coaches in the American football, I'm presuming it's also true in the premier league, right? These were not superstars, right? You know, we don't see, you know, Messi is not going to go into coaching. And I don't think, I think Maradona's coaching career was a little, uh, erratic, uh, but you know, like Bill Belichick is the best coach in American football. And he was a middling player and a pretty crappy college team, but an amazing, amazing coach and teacher. And I think you, you suggest that teaching requires, you know, really, really good metacognition. Now if that's true. Then presumably getting people to teach would help them with their, their metacognition. I was a Montessori kid and part of the Montessori education is that you spend at least as much time teaching your classmates as you do learning. And in the MBA programs I teach, we encourage the students to spend a lot of time on lateral teaching and, and lateral learning. And you also suggest that maybe if we have researchers that are no longer engaged in teaching, this might actually have some unintended side effects. So what is, what is the relationship between kind of teaching, learning and, and metacognition? I mean, it's such a fascinating area that I think is one that is getting increasing attention in research, in education, as well as in cognitive psychology. And I mean, I think the main idea here is that say in the case of sports coaching, when you achieve elite performances in a certain domain, that's often when you don't need this meta model. You don't need the pilot anymore. Everything's in a sense been offloaded to the autopilot because it's so well practiced. Well, it could even harm you, right? Right. So that's what isn't choking about when you're like, you start, as soon as you start thinking about your swing, that's when it kind of goes off the rails. Right. Exactly. And there's been some 
nice experiments showing that when you ask people to attend, when you ask skilled athletes to attend to what they're doing, that seems to hurt their performance. So there's this sense in which keeping things automatic and not thinking too much about what we're doing might hold benefits there. Now the paradox comes because then if the elite athlete has done that, then maybe they lose that external perspective that metacognition gives you on when you might need to change your strategy or alter your model of how you're approaching something. And the coach then can provide that external perspective. So it's not necessarily that the coach needs to have good metacognition themselves, although that might well be true as well. It's more that they're in a sense providing this surrogate external self-awareness for the player's performance. So it's like a division of labor. Are you saying it's like the players outsource their metacognition to a third party? Exactly, exactly. And I think that there's this parallel there then with the teaching context, because we can, in a sense, do that to ourselves. If we externalize our knowledge, if we put it on the table, if we get things down on paper, then that provides this target and it's an assessment, a meta-level assessment of what we do really know and don't know. And this is, in a sense, seems to be important for disabusing people of overconfidence. You might say, yeah, I know all about that. And then you're like, well, go on then, <laughs> explain it to me. And then there seems to be this realization then, this uncomfortable realization that, no, we don't really know it as well as we did. And there's, you know, increasingly nice demonstrations of quite simple but effective educational interventions is getting people to teach what they know to a classmate. And just that act of teaching seems to hold benefits for their own learning. And the hypothesis is, and again, this is now veering down the road of speculation because there needs to be more concrete research done on the mechanism here. But the hypothesis is that that, in a sense, kickstarts our own metacognition. It makes us realize, hang on, we don't necessarily know that as well as we do, or, or allows us to re reinterpret what we do know. And that then taking that one step further to come to the last part of your question about academia, there's this drift in the UK, at least, and I, I know less about the American system. I think it, my perception from over here is that it's better in America actually, but there's a drift in the UK towards this division of teaching and research tracks in universities. And so researchers, especially younger researchers are encouraged to not teach at all, informally encouraged because it might hurt their careers. And so you get this in a sense, division of labor where the stellar researchers go off and do research and other people are left to pick up the teaching. And I think that's a real shame for two reasons. One is that you often do want the researchers to be doing some teaching as well and communicating that the latest findings in their area to the students. But also I just feel like, and maybe this is just a personal bias, but just, I feel like forcing myself to do some teaching. And sometimes it does feel like you have to force yourself to do it because it is hard, but forcing yourself to do that does, again, it forces you to externalize the wider subjects. And I also felt the same when I was writing the book that forced me to get things down on paper. And in a sense, to really think about how do I view this topic? What do I know? What do I don't know? And so on. Now you talked about things like Alzheimer's and alcoholism and how they can damage your metacognition, but you also talked about the role of, of stress and, and emotion in impacting metacognition. And I was particularly interested in the impact of, of stress. You know, one of the things that we do in business schools is we do a lot of 
executive training, executive education. We're, we're trying to help organizations become more capable of learning and more capable of incorporating feedback and creating these, these individuals who have, I think, better metacognition. I think the belief is that they're more likely to improve their performance if they have better metacognition. But of course, a lot of work environments are, are full of stress. So you kind of wonder, you speculate, right? I mean, stress is fight or flight response. That might be the moment when you need your metacognition the most, at least in some subset of circumstances where you're, you're stressed. So what's the mechanism that's at work there? Why does stress, is it that one view of stress is that it focuses on the short term and the immediate, and you forget a little bit about kind of the long-term planning, but metacognition is not simply about revising the, the model that you're going to be using in the world in the future. It's really a lot about in the moment, understanding the quality of the decisions that you're making. So what's the kind of adaptive reason for stress interfering with your, your metacognition? So absolutely, self-awareness is fragile. Metacognition seems to be quite prone to loss, to damage, to distortion. As you mentioned in the question, you know, we know now from work on dementia, from Alzheimer's, that these networks involving the prefrontal and parietal cortex, when they start to become damaged or impaired, then people might lose self-awareness, reflective awareness of the changes in cognitive function. And there seems to be this impact of short-term in otherwise healthy people. If you have a stressful situation, then what that appears to do is to cause a drop of function of these more prefrontal executive areas and focus more, as you say, on the short-term, on governing action, on preparing us for immediate responding to the situation at hand, rather than say a more reflective stance that takes into account the, the whole context, the whole situation. And that's been nicely shown in, in the lab by a team led by Gabo Reyes in, in Chile. He's shown in a series of experiments that when people are stressed, their metacognition on these lab-based tasks becomes impaired. But interestingly, their performance, as long as the task is simple enough, the, their performance might continue unchecked, but the metacognition seems to get impaired. Now, the question is, as you say, like, it seems a bit paradoxical because maybe those are the situations when we are stressed that we would want to take a step back to have this external perspective on whether things are going off the rails. But I think that's just a consequence of us thinking about stress in a more modern context. Like if when you think about stress in a kind of longer evolutionary context, the stress response is because I'm about to be eaten. So I should run away and not <laughs> reflect on whether my strategy is going to plan. Whereas in a modern context, if I'm like being suddenly told I've got a deadline of midnight and so on, uh -huh. I get the same response, but I really should be engaging metacognition there and not charging around like a headless chicken. So, so I think that's just a disconnect there. You know, this is not my area of expertise, but I, I know, you know, there's obviously a lot of work on suggesting that our evolutionarily developed lower level bodily responses to situations might actually be maladaptive in a more modern setting. Now you, you make some comments about artificial intelligence and, you know, I think the first type of metacognition where you're trying to calibrate errors, right? I mean, this is something that AI researchers spend a lot of time thinking about, but the second type, that's one 
where there seems to be a, a divergence between artificial and, and human intelligence. You know, will we ever see the kind of metacognition that humans are capable of in machines? I mean, it seems like there's a huge movement now towards what's called explainable AI, where you're just, you know, articulating the method by which the decisions are made. AI has a tough time with just that. What have we learned about what's unique about human reasoning through all the research that we've been doing in AI? So I think that even the first part of your question on just generating uncertainty estimates that are sensible is not a trivial problem for, it's an active area of machine learning research. And in fact, there's a project that I'm involved in with the Oxford Robotics Institute at the moment where we're working on trying to import insights from the psychology of metacognition into robots. So can we give them, in a sense, minimal levels of uncertainty and confidence tracking in a format that is useful for collaboration with humans? So there's plenty of probabilities floating around a neural network, but they're not necessarily in the right format for right. exchanging with human collaborators. I like that idea you talked about where the cars would glow, you know, yellow yeah. or green or red based on their confidence in you know, what they were doing when they're cruising down the road. Right. That was kind of like a toy, somewhat humorous example, but it, it does have a kernel of truth to it though. Like we think that perhaps these externally available metacognitive signals might help us develop trust in artificial agents. When you're crossing the street, you tend to look at, you want to try to make eye contact with the person at the intersection. Right. And there's so much information contained in that eye contact. If you're, if you see an autonomous vehicle, making eye contact isn't an option. So you don't really, you're not really sure whether the, the car has seen you or not, right? Right, exactly. So those are the kind of experiments that we, we're just getting started now is providing that more graded signal of, I know what I'm doing here, or I don't know what I'm doing here. Can that, in a sense, finesse that interaction in a way that goes beyond Siri just saying, I didn't understand that. Like we want something slightly more graded, something more more human-like in terms of the way we share our self-assessments. But I think the broader question of like, you know, really longer term question about how will machines change and develop and maybe approach human style self-awareness is a fascinating one. And I think there's nothing in principle to say that algorithms will not inch towards that goal. You know, self-awareness depends on the biology of the human brain. We have an existence proof for algorithms for metacognition. They must be implementable in some way. There's nothing to stop us trying to do the same in an artificial system. But what makes me, I guess, slightly less sure that that will happen anytime soon is that I think the goal, rightly so, the goal of the AI community is not to replicate human style, consciousness, awareness, and so on. The goal of the AI community is to move towards intelligence in various forms and perhaps generalize intelligence. But I think what we know from work on human consciousness, on human self-awareness, is that they don't go hand in hand. Being intelligent is not the same thing as being conscious. And so I think if we were to really invest in saying like, I want a whole load of AI researchers to start working on the problem of building artificial self-awareness, maybe then we'll make loads of progress on that, but I'm not sure what goal that would serve. So I think the more practical challenge is to, and this comes back to your point about explainability, is that there are certain things that metacognition seems to give humans that we might actually want in, in AI. 
And one of them is the more public displays of confidence and uncertainty that might improve trust. But another one is explainability. And as you say, there's a huge amount of work, fantastic work going on on trying to develop ways, clever ways of getting out explainable algorithms, either simplifying the algorithm down or applying some readout of what that algorithm is doing. And one thing I mentioned in the book is that one perhaps novel route towards doing this is to make better use of human metacognition and find clever ways of interfacing our machines with human metacognition, not necessarily by sticking electrodes in the head, although maybe that could be possible, but more about just like providing that closer metacognitive contact with our own devices, because this is exactly how we monitor the quotes autopilots of the human brain and body. So I don't know how my eye works, but I can recognize that when it, my vision goes out of focus, I don't know how, all the biomechanics of my arm, but I can recognize when I hit a poor tennis shot. And those notions of self-evaluation of unconscious systems, I think that that is in theory possible as well with AI. And it might, in a sense, provide us with a route to bypassing explainability. Now, I was interviewing Massimo Pugliucci, who's a philosopher and a biologist, and he uses this term sci-fi, you know, science and, and philosophy. And so I just want to ask you a bit about the philosophical side of your work. I can't help but read books like yours, always with a bit of a question as to how this impacts my thinking about how I should live my life, right? You know, there's always that background philosophical question, which is right. how to live. And what can I learn from this book about how I can kind of live a better life? And so does knowing more about metacognition kind of help you become better at it? Does it inspire you to want to do more of it, right? To attain a higher degree of, of metacognition? Has it inspired you, for instance, to meditate or seek out paths towards better metacognition? This is a great question. So I think that one hope is that by understanding more about the failure modes of human metacognition, that provides us with new knowledge about how to avoid those pitfalls. And so just the discussion we were having on stress or on these illusions of overconfidence that might ensue without us trying to explain something to someone else, or the fact that, you know, I talk also in the book about how metacognition is surprisingly offline a lot of the time. We think that we are paying full attention and in a more reflective and in the moment way of living, but there is nice work suggesting that we mind wander and go off task more than we would admit to ourselves. And so kind of in a sense, being aware of the parameters of of how it works and what might affect it and what might hurt it. I think that gives us a, in a sense, a map of how to avoid those pitfalls. And so I do think learning more about the science of metacognition helps us use it better. In terms of how that's like affected my own life, I did used to meditate before I had kids <laughs> and then that put paid to that. But yeah, I, I think one of the main things that it's made me become more alert to is this idea of, it's hard to put my, my finger on in terms of what exactly it changes in my day-to-day -day life. But one thing that I've become more aware of is the fact that people's confidence in what they know, their beliefs they hold can fluctuate quite wildly, not just from topic to topic, but even from day to day. So you, in a sense that this decoupling of confidence and accuracy 
gives me a bit more compassion when I see these kind of Twitter wars break out, when people are just doubling down and saying, no, I definitely know this is the right way of thinking about something. It just provides this, I guess, slightly more um, third person perspective on why people's minds might operate in the way that they do. Now that's not, you don't just get that from studying metacognition, you get that from studying the whole of psychology and cognitive science. But I think studying metacognition provides one angle onto it, why those things might work the way they do. Yeah, my colleague, Don Moore, he says that you should never provide a point estimate without a confidence interval. But I think in, in ordinary life, we probably ought to somehow come up with an easy way of incorporating confidence intervals into everything we say, right? So when, when someone says, you know, I'll, I'll be at your house at eight o'clock, what I'd really yeah. like them to say is, well, there's really a 10% chance I'll be at your house at eight o'clock. Right, right, right. And I know there are some languages where, you know, you're not allowed to state a fact without stating kind of how you came about that knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody told me, or I saw it myself or whatever. It'd be great if we could somehow reinvent the English language so that it had these baked in calibrations to everything we say about the world and about ourselves. But until then, until then, <laughs> you can check out this book, Know Thyself. It's fascinating. It helps you understand other people. It helps you understand yourself. Thank you so much, Steve. Well, no, thanks very much, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.